I'm definitely more glass half empty person. My flatmate often says that I should get a tattoo of a glass half full. But the only problem there is that I would just see it as being half empty. I'd like to think that I'm a positive person, that I always try to look for the positives, even in the negatives. I think that if you try and make the most from a bad situation, then you'll always turn that situation into a better situation in the long run. I I definitely see myself as a pessimist. You go through life and you just get used to not getting your way. I consider myself an optimist. Being a pessimist is so tiring. Hello and welcome to Pi. Pi, of course, stands for Psychologically Informed Environment. That's a bit of a mouthful. In this four-part series, we aim to get to the bottom of why we think, feel and behave the way that we do. And why are we bothering to do this? Basically because it's been scientifically proven that understanding our thought processes and those of others is therapeutic and great for our well-being. Who knew? Joining me as we explore the human condition is psychologist and co-founder of The Positive Group, Dr. Brian Marion. Hello, Brian. Hi, Rick. Are you well today? I'm very well, thank you. Are you feeling positive? I'm feeling very positive. That might well be relevant. So in each episode, we're going to be introducing a different emergent property that we all experience, assessing what it is, how it affects us, and what we can do to adjust it, if necessary. I think positivity is your approach to people and situations and how you deal with stuff and your outlook and what you like project out to people and the vibes you give off, man. Being aware of the bad things around you or the bad things affecting your life, but being able to soldier on and continue and do the best that you can anyway. Positivity to me actually has negative connotations. I think maybe because positivity to me is a a bit far-fetched or a bit fake. I don't have too much experience with positivity. Uh, I think it's kind of just having um, a more, I can't just say positive outlook. So in this episode, the topic we're going to be tackling is positivity. And I've got a sense of what positivity means to me. It's having a sunny outlook and thinking that things are probably going to turn out pretty well and you just need to put in a certain amount of effort. And even if they don't turn out well, that'll be a temporary thing and you can kind of continue and they'll get better. Is there more to it, though, in this context, Brian? I think there is. One of the things that's happened over the last sort of 20 years is we've actually identified some of the protective factors, some of the things that people do who seem to be more resilient, they seem to be more optimistic, they seem to bounce back from adversity a bit quicker. And how does a kind of optimistic versus pessimistic mindset manifest itself optimists actually are more likely to have a go at things. They're more likely to fulfill their potential. So sometimes pessimism gives you this sense that it wouldn't work, there's no point. So you have a sort of I can't thinking, which then stops you having a go, which actually means you can never disconfirm the belief. So this comes back to sort of Henry Ford's line, you know, if you think you can or you think you can't, you're probably right. So the the thinking is driving the behaviour which then becomes a a self-fulfilling prophecy. There's good data showing that optimists do live longer than pessimists. Which they would have thought they would as well. (laughs) Yes, because the the pessimists probably feel it's all pretty miserable. Mm. So it seems a lot longer. Therefore, it must be useful to have a positive outlook then, to try and strive to be be happy. Because it makes us feel good. Absolutely. There's a lot of data on that now, looking at how positive mood states improve cognitive function. 
they improve your physical health. They improve social relationships. And this is being encapsulated in an area called positive psychology. One man who can explain a bit more about positive psychology is happiness expert and Harvard lecturer Tal Ben-Shahar. Hello, my name is Tal Ben-Shahar, and I study happiness. Until recently, the whole field of happiness studies was really dominated by the self-help movement. There has been a lot of charisma in that area. There's been a lot of interesting things said, but science wasn't involved. And it's just recently that the scientific communities have become interested in what I consider the ultimate question, which is how can we help people become happier? There are many ways to measure happiness. So in the past, it was mostly through uh, questionnaires or observations. Today, more and more scientists are looking at happiness by measuring people's brain, by using EEG uh, or using fMRI or PET scans. And we pretty much know what, what a happy brain or what a sad brain or what a compassionate brain looks like. Positive psychology is essentially the science of happiness and emphatically focuses on those things that make life worth living. You see, traditional psychology is largely focused on things that are not working. So a therapist would begin by asking me, Tal, what's wrong? Or a couple's counselor would begin by asking my wife and me, what's not going well in your relationship? Positive psychology says these are important questions, but we need to begin elsewhere. We need to begin with what is working. So a therapist would first ask me, Tal, what's going well in your life? Now, this doesn't mean ignoring the problems, far from it. When we focus on what is working, we become more resilient and hence better able to deal with the things that are not working. Resilience is the equivalent of our psychological immune system. Now, think about it. What does a, a strong immune system mean? It doesn't mean that we don't get sick. It just simply means that we get sick less often. A person who is resilient still experiences sadness, difficulties, hardships, but he or she experiences it less often, and when they do experience it, they recover more promptly. There is a common misconception in our society that success leads to happiness. And this misconception leads billions of people around the world to pursue success at the expense of their happiness and to encourage their children, their students to pursue success as if it will lead to happiness. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. If it were, then we would have found that the most successful people are also the happiest people in the world and, and they're not far from it. While success does not lead to happiness, there still is a relationship between these two variables. It's only the opposite. If we increase levels of well-being even by a little bit, what we immediately see is a significant increase in levels of uh, people's creativity, how innovative they are. Uh, we see an increase in productivity. We see uh, higher levels of physical health, better teamwork, better relationships. In other words, happiness pays. So it's not that success leads to happiness, it's rather that happiness leads to more success. The first tip that I would have for people who are sad or dealing with sadness is to give themselves the permission to be human. 
to fully accept uh, whatever emotion comes up. You see, there are only two kinds of people who do not experience painful emotions. The two kinds of people are, first, the psychopaths, and second, dead people. So if you experience painful emotions, if you're sad at times, it's actually a good sign. It means you're not a psychopath and you're alive. Uh, It's a good place to start and we can all build on that. Now, after we give ourselves the permission to be human, then we need to ask, okay, so what it is that I can do in order to feel better? And the answer may be to go out and exercise or dance. And most importantly, number one determinant of happiness is quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. Real time, not virtual time. Real time when we're talking to our friends, hanging out, being with our family, uh, the the old-fashioned way. So what do you reckon, Brian? Can happiness be taught? Yes, I believe it can. A range of things have been shown to be extremely helpful in producing more positive mood. And I think the more of those levers that you can pull, the more likely you are to improve your mood and enjoy greater life satisfaction. So is positive psychology universally accepted as a, as a good thing then? I think it's important here to make a distinction between positive psychology, which uses a wide range of evidence-based tools now that do improve people's mood and well-being, and relentless positive thinking. Oliver Berkman wrote a, an excellent book called uh, The Antidote, where he feels that trying to be positive all the time can actually make you feel unhappy, because you then start to feel unhappy if you don't feel happy, which can make you more unhappy. Is the pitfall here then, Brian, that if you're striving to be happy all the time, you're going to be disappointed because it's not possible to maintain constant happiness? Yeah, I think John Stuart Mill famously quoted, ask yourself whether you are happy and you cease to be so. Mm. One of the difficulties here is that if we're looking to be happy, then we get upset when we're not happy. I've just realised I've said we can't be happy all the time. Um, because it just feels that that's probably right. But is it right? And and and, it, and if it is, why can't we be happy all the time? I mean, if I met someone who was happy the whole time, I think I would probably find them slightly sort of creepy. <laughs> why does it seem so unnatural? We tend not to focus on the positive because more of our brain is devoted to scanning the world for threat than it is for looking for what's positive in the world because that's kept us in the gene pool. Uh, we became very vigilant to threat. So the negative has much more potency than the positive. And if you think about a conversation that you have with somebody and they say quite a few nice things to you and they say one thing that's critical, what do you carry away from that conversation? I'm fixating on the criticism, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> so most of us can remember insults very much better than compliments. So the thing to do then is sort of forget about being relentlessly positive and try and just aspire to be happy rather than expecting to be happy all the time. That's an excellent summary. I'll take that, Brian. (laughs) Please. (laughs) Overly positive people make me feel a bit nauseous. Oh, there's a line and I just don't think you should cross it because you just end up annoying people. It makes us feel uneasy if we see someone overly positive because we think, well, have they not seen what's happening in the world? I actually respond really well to positive people. I feel like it's very motivational. I can see why some people find it grating, especially if you're not that way inclined. 
Overly positive people make me feel uneasy because I just think they're lying to themselves and they're lying to me. So now we know what positivity is. In this part, we're going to be looking at how it affects us on a day-to-day basis. Brian, have I understood this right? Being perpetually positive can actually make us miserable? Well, I think if you can achieve perpetual positivity, I don't think it will make you miserable. If you actually expect to be permanently happy, then I think that can make you unhappy because it's an unrealistic expectation. And one of the things that predicts misery in human beings is unrealistic expectations, what's sometimes known as a myth reality gap. And you see this in perfectionism. You see it in a whole range of things where people set unrealistic goals for themselves and they're expecting something that doesn't come to fruition. This um, myth reality gap that you mentioned, sometimes, presumably, if you're trying to improve at something, it's helpful to have a small gap, isn't it? That's correct. Being able to set a target that is realistic and achievable and working towards it is a fantastic way to go. And human beings respond extremely well to being stretched. The danger is attaching your ego or your self-worth to the outcome. Mm-hmm. Because if you do that and it doesn't work, you then become very despondent and self-critical and self-recriminating. I guess the other danger, which we've kind of touched upon, that we've talked about before, metacognition, where I start feeling sad about feeling sad or feeling unhappy about feeling unhappy. And, and that might well be a trap that I fall into if I am constantly seeking to be happy. Indeed, and I think it goes both ways. When we feel happy, we get happy about being happy. Well, that's uh, the good bit of metacognition. <laughs> It is, but actually that accentuates sometimes the non-acceptance or the distress associated with feeling unhappy. Oh, so bigger highs, bigger lows. Absolutely. Mm. And if you talk to people who have sort of bipolarity, when they're feeling high, they love that because they've got lots of dopamine, lots of energy, they're, they're flying, they've got rapid speech, flight of ideas, everything's going very nicely and they feel wired. The opposite route is that you start to feel a bit low and then you hate feeling like that. So you then start to get low about feeling low. What's going on with my brain when quite often, if I'm looking forward to something, I enjoy the promise of whatever it is more than the actual thing. Is that normal? You're right. What's happened is that our system is devised to make us not focus on what's good. So what we don't tend to do as human beings is savour things for long. There's a concept in psychology called hedonic adaptation, which means that when you're seeking something, when you're expecting something, that creates quite a lot of dopamine, quite a lot of excitement. When you achieve it, the dopamine drops pretty rapidly. So you need to do it again, and that's a sort of addictive circuit as well. And and this is the bizarre thing, I think, about the Western world, is that we have all this material wealth, we have all this success. And I was going to say, this feels like consumerism is being driven by this, isn't it? Absolutely. We're some of the most fortunate people in the world, but how often do we remind ourselves that we have freedom of speech, freedom of movement, a roof over our head, a full belly, But what we do focus on is things that may happen that go wrong or actually might go wrong. So our imaginary threats or the real threats actually take over most of our working memory. Bit of kind of hashtag first world problems, isn't it? Absolutely. What about this phenomenon of where I almost feed my negative emotions by spotting other things that are going to make me feel a bit down? So I'm in a bad mood. And I'm 
inevitably drawn towards other things that are going to annoy me. Yeah. So what we've got here is what's called mood congruent cognition. We start to focus our attention on something that is mood congruent. So when I'm sad, I can notice all the things that make me feel sad. When I'm angry, I notice all the things that irritate me. It impacts on your physiology, your energy. It impacts on your behavior. And it impacts on your recall, your memory. So if I'm feeling a bit down and then I start to think about the past, am I more likely to focus on things that have previously made me feel down? Most definitely. I mean, this is sometimes called mood congruent recall. So when you're feeling happy, you can access all your happy times with preferential access Mm. and you can visit them. And it's very difficult when you're feeling happy to access your misery database. Mm. But when you're miserable... You're very good at accessing your sad database, but you can't find it easy to access your positive database. What would be a good example of mood congruent recall then? Well, there's a big area of psychology called attribution theory, and this is an interesting way of looking at how we attribute things depending on our mood state. So let me give you an example. Let's say I lose my car keys. Mm -hmm. If I'm feeling good and I lose my car keys, I probably think to myself, well, you know, i probably got distracted when I came in last night. I'll have put them somewhere. This doesn't often happen. uh, And it doesn't define me as a human being. This sort of thing happens to all sorts of people. But if I'm feeling low, and I lose my car keys, the way I attribute this can be very different. So I then internalize it and say, I'm stupid. I'm an idiot. Everyone's calling me a car key loser behind my back. (laughs) Absolutely. I then actually start to think I'm always doing this. And then I'm crap at everything. So what we do is we internalize. It's me. I'm useless. It's stable. It's always happening. And it's global, which means that everything I do is crap. Now, when I'm feeling good, I don't do that. So the way we process information, the way we actually think about an event is materially different in our different mood states. And so internal, stable and global means internal, it's my fault. Yeah. Stable, I'm always getting this wrong. Yeah and global, I'm bad at everything. Exactly. As opposed to what you really want, which is external. Lots of people would have got this wrong. Yes. Unstable, doesn't happen often. I'm not, I'm not like yep. I'm constantly getting this thing wrong. And yes, specific. So this is an isolated, this, yep. this doesn't have Absolutely. a wider implication about the sort of person I am. Interestingly, I think that the way I process most things is external, unstable, specific. Fantastic. And I always think it's probably, well, even blame other people. I very rarely think it's my fault. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's very protective. Yes, yes, I'm very protective of myself. (laughs) (laughs) But interestingly, what people do when something good happens and they have a negative view of themselves or they're a bit depressed, they flip it. So... They don't say, well, actually, I did that quite well, or I worked hard towards that, and actually, well done. They say, it's chance, it's nothing to do with me. So they externally attribute it, which means they develop what's called a mental filter. And the mental filter, basically, is that anything that is rubbish comes flying through the mental filter and hits the middle of the bullseye. But anything that's good is deflected. Oh, well, that was just luck. It could have happened to anybody. It doesn't mean I didn't do it. It didn't happen because I'm any good at anything. So your self-esteem, your self-belief, your self-worth can never increase because you're always deflecting the positive and allowing the negative to knock you back. So to sum up then, Brian, if we start worrying about not being happy, 
it's possible that we'll get stuck in a horrible, perpetuating cycle of rumination and misery and in, I guess, in extreme cases, depression. Yeah. Oh, dear. I mean, that sounds terrible. So that's how optimism and and pessimism can affect us, which leaves us with the burning question, which is if we feel ourselves entering into that spiral of kind of metacognitive doom, how can we get out of it, Brian? (laughs) Well, I think think you've hit the nail on the head. The first thing is to recognise you've moved there. And then the next thing, I think, is to actually bring some positive psychology to that process. Is it important as well to like go easy on yourself and and not just blame yourself for stuff that has gone wrong and think, well, this is totally my fault. I should have expected this. Typical. Typical me. I think that, again, is absolutely on the money. What happens is that when we feel a bit low, we're much more likely to be self-critical, self-recriminating, self-deprecating, and that, that keeps our mood and our mind in place. So acceptance and commitment is a big area of psychology at the moment. So you don't just accept and become passive and get stuck in your mood state. You accept it. You look at the things that are keeping you stuck, and then you work to modify those variables. I wonder about this stuff that I feel like you see quite a lot on TV and read in magazines, which is remind yourself of all the things you have to be thankful for. Savouring. Savouring good things. Is that useful? I think that the data on this is overwhelming now. If we can train ourselves every day to start thinking about what's good in our lives, who we have in our lives, what is valuable in our lives, that can become a fantastically potent mechanism for shifting our mood. So to sum up then, uh, our life is is characterised by ups and downs, mood swings, um, so don't expect to be positive all the time. Uh, there are going to be times that we feel good and there are going to be times when we don't feel good. And the key to resilience is how we respond in those moments because that's the thing that we actually we can control. We can learn how to control. Uh, we can develop mechanisms to help work through negative emotions and bring us back to positive ones. And I guess, Brian, this is where you tell me that Positive Group is doing that. Yep. So for this section of the pie, we've developed two tools, the Positive Pinboard and the Strengths Mirror. With the positive pin board, we actively encourage people to record things that are good in their life. They actually may take photographs of people. They may take photographs of places, things that make their heart sing. And actually by keeping this on your app, on your phone, you can then actually start to access that when your mood drops. And we know that that is a fantastic form of cognitive bias modification. It lifts your mood. Mm -hmm. And the other tool is the strengths mirror. The reason we call this the strengths mirror is because we're often good at seeing strengths in others, but we're not so good at noticing or registering our own strengths. So the idea here is that you use the metaphor of a mirror to actually start thinking about what your strengths are and recognizing those. We can also use the strengths mirror to use what's called imaginal exposure. So if you've got certain strengths, then to start to imagine using those strengths and competencies in another area of your life, which you find more threatening or more anxiety provoking. Yeah. There was a very interesting study looking at youngsters who visualized exam success and it had absolutely no correlation with exam success. But if they visualized the way they were going to achieve exam success through studying and work and perseverance, it massively increased the chances of their success. So what we need to do is use our strengths to see ourselves making the journey to where we want to get to. And so these tools can help you keep a lid on negative self-talk and help to channel your positivity in the right direction. 
As always, you can get more information about both of these tools by visiting positivegroup.org. So one positive thing was that I saw my baby nephew, who is six months old, and he's really fat and cute. He's in the cute baby stage, so it was, it was great to see that little guy. In the last 24 hours, I was taken out for drinks with some friends and had a wonderful evening, and I went to a casino and I was able to beat the dealer several times a blackjack and actually left in profit. Had the best scrambled eggs I've ever made in a very long time. I know that's really minor, but it's nice having good scrambled eggs in the morning. I did a lunge in front of some friends the other day. <laughs> I got my knees very close to the ground and <laughs> I had good length on it. To be honest, I knew that it was a good lunge. Pi was brought to you by Positive Group and Radio Wolfgangs, presented by me, Rick Edwards, with Dr. Brian Marion, and featured author and lecturer Tao Ben-Shahar. It was produced by L. Scott, and the executive producer was Harry Watson. Positive Group worked with organisations including schools and universities, as well as supporting parents and individuals to improve their skills in building and sustaining psychological well-being. If you want to find out more about the work of Positive, go to positivegroup.org. <laughs>